Hi, and welcome to Where the White Coats Come Off. We are Katie and Beth, and we are here to help you get into PA school and then get through PA school. We are so excited to bring you today's episode. So he decided to go and find some PAs. Now, we had never, ever heard of PAs in the UK at that time. So um, I bumped into him, and he said, you need to come and see these people that I've got working. And he, I said, what are they? He said, physician assistants. And I said, what in God's name is a physician What is that? <laughs> Um, and I spent the day with them, and I was completely and utterly blown away. And at that moment, I was kind of sold on the idea at that moment. And then literally about four years passed, um, and I was uh, working at Wolverhampton, of course, where we met Beth. Right. And I was walking down the corridor and bumped into these two people with really strange accents. Um, they were kind of Kentucky type of accents. You just um, imagine what you thought. <laughs> And it was, it was Professor Farringer and Professor Garola. And they were over working with our School of Health Sciences. And not surprisingly, and you, you know my relationship with David is a very close relationship. He's one of the dearest friends. Yeah. And we kind of hit it off and we were talking. And I said, I, I'm going to run a PA program in the UK. Uh, I don't know how. I have nowhere, no idea how to start. And, um, and so we simply put Kentucky program and made it British. I love it. I love it. You put the British um, spin on it. Uh, we just literally turned it as much as we could, except we decided to do a blended model. Rather than having a preclinical clinical year, we decided to do a blended model. So our students went into primary care in week two. Wow. Okay, so they're yeah. they're in the classroom and in clinicals at the same time. Sure, they do one. They, they were doing one day a week in in primary care, um, and then everybody thought I'd lost my mind um, because I had I'd started this program and uh, studied this profession. I'd done this very very neat deal with some of the local GPs. So essentially, what I'd agreed with them was that. They would essentially um, work with me on delivering the program, and at the end of two years, they would employ the graduates, mm -hmm. and they would give them a contract for two years immediately on graduation. So we, we did that, and as I say, everyone thought I'd completely and utterly lost my mind. I remember the dean of one medical school calling me a medical heretic um, because I was trying to get junior doctors on the cheap. <laughs> I love it. But, like, it, it takes that kind of push to have a new profession, right? I mean, it takes someone like you to advocate for the profession for it to be pushed uh -huh. through. And it took a band of warriors. It, it, you know, it wasn't just me. There were many others that were in that very early cohort that nobody remembers anymore. It's really quite sad. And I keep, myself and Professor Paul keep talking about doing the history of this. Yes. Because these people are fading into the background. So, yeah, and then we formed what was a, a group of interested um, academics to start looking at how we could launch more programs. Um, we launched one at Hertfordshire University, Kingston University, which became St. George's, which is, you know, a great, great program. And we, we, we just started to develop it. And because we launched, and because I launched my first program, literally five months after the first conversation about it. Wow, that's still, impressive. Well, I, to be honest with you, Beth, I was writing the modules with my team 
one step ahead of the students, literally. Wow. Yeah. And I can tell you, Katie, when we were writing this stuff, I, you know, we were taking the Kentucky kind of curriculum, we were adding in stuff from the undergraduate medical school, and we were making it up as we were going along. And these early graduates are still going now. They're still working, and they're still really leading the way. And one of them, Christopher Dean, a great guy. He's a redhead, too. Oh, yes, the redheads unite. And Christopher is now a partner in a primary uh, care wow. practice. That's amazing. So how and many then, schools do you have now, like PA schools? Uh, they're now 34. 34? 34. Wow. And are you are you a PA? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I, I just I, find that phenomenal that you advocate for a profession, like more than any PA I know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I've been a clinician for a long time, Katie. Um, my specialty is audiological and vestibular medicine. That's where my passion in life still is. I st I'm still clinical. Um, so I'm still very passionate about what, what I do clinically. I think there's been another person in our family for about 18 years, and that person's been the physician assistant. Or as we say here, and as you and I say in the States, the physician associate, thank God. Yeah, right. <laughs> and in okay. fact, my first program was an MSc in Physician Associate Studies in 2004. And we changed it to come in line with the U.S. Isn't that funny? And now we're, we're flipping back. <laughs> so, so I remember when I went over there, um, there was a couple students, I think there's only seven or something, that we met with, and they had just graduated. And so yeah. I was in my clinical year. They just graduated. Mm -hmm. And what one thing I remember they told me is there was one girl who had gotten a position in psych and she was super excited. And that the other girl had, had accepted a position, I think, in the ER, I think is what she said. But she said that the problem was is that nobody knew what a PA was, so no one knew how to treat her. And so they tried to kind of treat her like a nurse and they didn't really want her to prescribe or anything because they didn't understand what her role was. How has that changed in the past couple of years? So what we've done is this, again, this little band of warriors, which has now got bigger and bigger. There was, there's been a couple of real tipping points for us. The first tipping point took place about six or seven years ago, when the Royal College of Physicians recognized the physician associate and opened a faculty of physician associates within the Royal College of Physicians. Now, the, the UK medical world is, um, is, well, it's historic, I mean, the Royal College of Physicians was established in 1518. Wow. That's crazy to think about as American. <laughs> like, that's crazy to think about. So there's the Royal College of Physicians, the Royal College of Surgeons, the Royal College of Obs and Gyne, Royal College of General Practitioners, etc., etc. So to get one of the Royal Colleges to open a faculty was just amazing. And I've got to pay tribute to people like Jeannie Watkins, and Karen Roberts is an American PA working here in the UK, um, and to uh, Kate Lamb, who these these people are just outstanding leaders. And Jeannie and Kate are both PAs, and also Karen Roberts is an American PA. And these guys have taken up what we started. And one of the things that I was really absolutely definite about is it was important for myself and Professor Paul to build in our own obsolescence. So we need to become less and less and less and less important, disappear into the background, and PAs have to come forward to lead their profession.
profession, to, to run the faculties, to, to lead what's happening. And we're seeing some great leaders coming, some great young leaders coming. And that's really good. We're kind of just there to help a little. Yeah, and a mentor, yeah, because I, I mean, it's still a new profession, even though now you have 34 programs, you know, we have almost 300, and so it's still a new profession, and even though you've got these programs, it'll still take a while for them to graduate, and there's still a lot of people in our country that don't know what physician assistants yeah. do, we get asked that occasionally, so I think it's so amazing that you guys were, you know, the stewardships of this profession, and then now you're handing it to the next generation, say, we built it, now it's your turn to take it into, in the area you want it to be in. I, I just think that's so fantastic how much it has grown. I think we put the foundations in there. That's what we yeah. did. And I, what I've seen with people like Jeannie and with Kate and with many others is that they're building, putting all the building blocks in. And, and what's going to happen in the next year or so is we will have registration of the profession, but this is what's really important, with the General Medical Council. Now, up until now, no one, Absolutely no one other than doctors have been registered with the GMC, the General Medical Council, the AMA. Right. Um, and as of hopefully next year, maybe later this year, but certainly next year, PAs will have a place on the register of the General Medical Council. That is... That's huge. It's, ah. It really is, Katie. It's huge, huge, huge. And... Following that, there'll be an addendum to the uh, Prescribing Act, which will allow PAs to prescribe. And the interesting thing, which is different from the U.S., is when that happens in the U.K., that yeah. covers the entire U.K. Yeah, you don't have to worry about like state differences and that no. kind of stuff like we do. No, yeah, no. That's so um, nice. That's really yes. nice. <laughs> and that's the kind of next stage. And I remember... in. In 2008, I was very privileged and I was invited to be the keynote speaker at PAEA. And that was the first time, I was the very first non-American keynote speaker. <laughs> yes. And I remember um, I, I had a pretty risque joke to start the whole speech with, um, which was, I said, because I'm the first non-American keynote speaker and I'm British, I guess you guys have forgiven us for 1776. Um, and, um, and as I said, I thought, they're going to either laugh or they're going to lynch me, one or the other. Um, but fortunately, everybody got the joke, and that was really good. But I remember talking back then about how, what the important building blocks were, and these are now all coming, coming to be. So, That's yeah. fantastic. Just to think about it, in our life, I mean, just a few decades ago, it wasn't even a thing, and then you took up this mantle, and now all of a sudden it's exploding, and you've got these building blocks, and just, I mean, the future is unlimited now, that you're getting recognition, it, it politically, is. everything. It is, and, you know, I, I don't want I don't want anyone to think this is, a, this is something that is just about the work that I've done. There are so many people, mm -hmm. you know, there are so many people who have had to work tirelessly to... To, to get this to where it is. A couple of us were very fortunate to be there at the beginning to, to want to kind of step up in faith and kind of believe that we could do this. But, but this is down to the hard work of a lot of people. We now have our national examination that is now run, not by the universities as it used to be, but mm -hmm. actually by the Royal College of Physicians. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a separate body that runs it. 
we still have single best answer and a 16 station OSCE. Uh, oh, wow. So, uh, hang on, 14 station OSCE. I examine on that. Uh, we examine two or three times a year. Yeah. Uh, at a wonderful examination centre in Liverpool, home of the Beatles. Um, <laughs> That's uh, right, Abbey Road. We took a picture there. <laughs> our examination used to be, this is before our time, we used to have those OSCEs too, and then it got so big. So now we only have the written one. But I love the fact that you guys still have those OSCEs in there uh, to prove competency. Yeah, I mean, it's time consuming, and it takes a mm -hmm. lot of manpower to do it. But, you know, I think that um, the one thing that it proves is one, the knowledge base is good because if you don't pass the written, you can't take the OSCE. So the knowledge base is sound. And then secondly, the practical side of medicine. So, you know, we all know the art, of, uh, the medicine is not just a science, it's an art. There's a certain choreography to medicine, isn't there? There's a certain shape that medicine fills. And it's really important to see that that comes through and the way that are their graduates when they take the exam are able to conduct themselves in the choreography of medicine how they examine a patient how they break bad news to a patient how they interpret the um, tests that they have in front of them the labs that they might have there or an ECG or an image so it, it's bringing and we've we've introduced this year because of COVID also telemedicine mm, so we had literally have a patient on the other end of the phone and they've got to do a tele-consultation uh, with them, say. Um, that's smart, yeah. That's, that's yeah. moving with the times, for sure, because telemedicine has exploded over here. There was kind of a pushback. Nobody wanted to do it. But then when they had to do it, now there's that technology in place and people with bought systems. There's more telemedicine than ever. Sure. Yeah. What are some of the differences between the American PAs and UK PAs, like as far as practicing? Do you know, I think this is really interesting as well, Katie, because I, I tested this out. I remember when I was in Savannah, um, I talked about reciprocation because American PAs can come and practice in the UK, but British PAs cannot come and practice in the US. And I talked about reciprocation, and I, I was saying it's about time that we solve this problem. Yeah. And actually, we had a free flow of manpower. This was 2008. And this very large Texan with a very large hat stood up and told me that over his dead body would that ever happen. Um, and since, since he was a Texan, I thought, I'm not going to argue with him. He's probably carrying <laughs> <clears throat> So I tested this out. So what I did was when, I, I don't know if you remember the two students that came over to UK, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Kim and Ruth, who came over about the same time as yourself. Yeah. I remember that. And um, what I did with them was I had two UK students and I had two the other UK students. Um, and we actually got them to sit the reciprocal exams. So the British PAs oh. sat the American written exam and the American PAs sat the British exams. And what do you think the outcome was? Everybody passed. Yeah. Yep. And you know why? Because a femur is a femur is a femur, regardless of where you are. <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah, That's because you can't sit for the exam as a problem in the United States if you don't go to an arthrocreditive program. Yeah. Uh, getting back to your question, Katie, I think that the differences are, it, in the UK, it's a national health service. So whatever is agreed is implemented and agreed nationally. 
So when it comes to prescribing, comes to practice, it, it's, it is literally um, a national thing. Now that sounds simple, but actually PAs only practice in the UK currently under a section of the Medical Act. So there's a section, I think it's section 29, something like that, of the Medical Act, which says a physician can delegate responsibility to somebody that they are confident has the skill set to do it. And essentially, they work under the vicarious liability of the organization having delegation from a physician. That will change, and, and it needs to change. And it will change when registration comes uh, with the General Medical Council because PAs will be acting um, uh, more autonomously, if I can put it like that. Um, I hate this. I hate this whole thing about autonomous practice and independent practice because actually when we step back, regardless of whether we're a physician, a physician associate, a nurse practitioner, whatever, when you step back and make a decision as a clinician, you are responsible for that decision. You have to own that decision. And so there's that. So I think the, the difference between the federal system and the National Health Service it is different. And the other thing that we don't have to worry about here is whether the PAs here are income earning. So obviously right. people don't pay for their health care here when they come to visit. It's through general taxation. Right. So, yeah. Um, they don't Billing, have to be yeah. yeah, they don't have to be fee earning. Yeah. But in terms of practice, I think it's pretty similar to be honest. And you know, people like Ruth and Kim they still work together all these years later in the ED, and yeah. they're, they're just two of the nicest human beings on the planet, and they work uh, side by side uh, in the ED. That's fantastic, and I love the fact that you know PAs are in different specialties there now. We hope you enjoyed part one of our time with Professor Phil Begg. It was such an honor to spend time with Phil, an audiology and vestibular medicine clinician and such an advocate for the PA profession. He not only developed the first PA program in the United Kingdom and has been one of the groundbreakers for our profession overseas. We are so blessed to have this time with him and stay tuned for part two. Thank you so much for listening.